All right, everybody, welcome into another edition of the Salt City Hoops podcast. I'm Andy Larson, managing editor of saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. Ben Dowsett again joins me this week. Again, it's the doldrums of August, September. We are only, let's see, 24 days away until media day. Had an awesome discussion with Jazz PR yesterday about all the things that we're going to be bringing you at Salt City Hoops uh, for the upcoming season. So I'm excited for that. We'll have some interviews. We'll, uh, you know, we've been, talked about the radio show a little bit. Uh, we'll be doing some exciting things with this podcast. But the truth remains that we are still, sadly, 24 days away until media day. It's a little mm. bit too early to talk about training camp. We still don't know the final roster spots. Um, I believe that the Jazz still have three slots left in order to, to fill, um, yep. it, that they could fill with their training camp. And knowing Dennis Lindsay and his, and his mini camps, et cetera, I'm sure he will fill those slots. Yep. Um, so we decided to take a look back. And I think this podcast is going to be cool for a lot of Jazz fans because, you know... It's such an important part of our history as jazz fans, you know, uh, looking at these finals years in 1997-98, looking at Stockton, Malone, Hornacek, Jerry Sloan, Frank Layden, the the legends of the franchise, and kind of, I think it's important to know your roots a little bit, right? Like, uh, Absolutely. I, I I think it's a good topic. I mean, we had the refereeing podcast last week, and um, I, it's... Honestly, makes me just feel emotional fuzzies inside whenever it, I think about the old teams. It really does. We're you know we're kind of going we're we're showcasing how to remain relevant as a podcast even in, <laughs> even in the slow months. That's what we're doing. But yeah, you know, I, and I think this is this is the type of thing that you you know you always talk about sort of the the. I hate the term blue collar for fans, but it I don't know. I suppose it applies to, uh, when you talk about when you talk about jazz fans in general and and the sort of the fierce sense of loyalty that jazz fans have and of course that you know the our uh what's the term I'm looking for? Our 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 greatest period was the, was this period and and you know yeah, I think it's in both instructive and of course the like you say the a bit of the warm fuzzies when you can go back and and kind of break it all down a little bit well, and beyond that it's not even just the greatest period for the jazz and it, and it certainly is, but then there's also uh, there are also arguments that those finals jazz teams were actually one of the best teams of all time they just ran into an even better juggernaut, right, in the Chicago Bulls. I mean, if you if you look at, like, the statistical prowess of those teams, both offensively and defensively, you can make a real case based on their point differential, based on um, how efficient their offense was, especially, that that's one of the better teams of all time. Yeah, they were, you, you know, you. I've been going back in, in preparation for this, this historical podcast, and that's one of the things that jumped out at me the very most, is how... It's almost even even as a team that that contains the all time leader in both steals and assists by like a mile that nobody's ever going to touch, and even containing you know Carl Malone, one of the most consistent and and uh, long running players to ever play in the league. Even with those guys and Hornacek with all the shooting that he did, and Jerry Sloan's incredible statistical record in terms of the playoff appearances and wins with one team, and you can go on and on and on, right? Even keeping all that stuff in mind, the stats still. When I went back, the stats was I was like, "Wow!" Like the some of the stuff these guys did, some of the 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 statistics that they that they were able to sh- just the raw statistics. And that's not even watching the team and how remarkable they were in the in the moment. Yeah, no, I agree. So, um, just brief outline of this podcast: we're going to have David J. Smith on, one of our contributed writers. Um, he is the expert because he named his son Stockton. 
that pretty much <laughs> that qualifies you. I, I, I feel like, yes, that qualifies you on an expert on John Stockton, the era. And he's also written, I mean, it's not just that. He's also written some tremendous posts about that era of jazz basketball. Uh, David, are you there? I sure am, Andy. Cool. Well, I, thanks. I must make a disclaimer, though. Okay. My wife gave uh, our son that name. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? Passing the torch. So is it is it just because it's such a great name, or is it did you didn't have anything to do with it, though, is what you're telling me? Uh, I had something to do with it. Now, we went to the hospital with a few names, and uh, that I liked one, she liked one. We didn't like the others, and we kind of liked Stockton. So she said, how about we name him Stockton? And I disagree. And you weren't disappointed, yeah. <laughs> Not one bit. <laughs> well, and I just saw he's he's going off to. I'm friends with you on Facebook. He's going off to kindergarten or something this week, right? Uh, preschool. 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 Okay. Yep. Kindergarten's next year. So. Okay. Well, anyway, um, uh, thanks again for joining us, David. L- like I said, you've written some great posts on SaltCityHoops.com um, about this era of jazz basketball, and I kind of wanted to get your first impressions on like why this why this era is so meaningful for jazz fans. You know why? Um, you know why was jazz basketball defined as how these players played? You know, fifteen, sixteen years ago. Sure thing. Now. The mid-80s is when the, the Jazz really took off, but then it was the Stockton and Malone era that took it to a new level. Um, for years, you could consistently count on these teams to be great. Um, they fell short from time to time, uh, as we know in the playoffs. But what uh, exemplified them for me was the fact that they played team basketball. Uh, they were a team that... Uh, always made the extra pass. And it wasn't just Malone and Stockton and Hornacek, but it, it trickled throughout the whole team where they wanted to get everyone involved, and it was beautiful basketball. The Jazz truly were the first Spurs. You can see Popovich quotes for, littered throughout the years. For about you know Now we're at a point in the league where the, the, everybody wants to emulate the Spurs, and you, you, Popovich has said repeatedly how in they really took a lot of those examples from the Jazz. The Jazz really were the first. They were one of those first teams to kind of take the start taking the game away from the whole idea of being an individual dominated game. And we see that the, the dichotomy still runs to this day. And we had the, the best example in the finals last year of the, you know the, the individual type of thing versus a more of a team concept. And I think the Jazz were one of the maybe the first right to to sort of introduce that sort of thing. Am I? Am I maybe uh, uh, romanticizing my own set of historical events and, and forgetting somebody else along there, or you know, were the Jazz really one of the first to kind of be emulating that sort of style? I think they were one of the first. I think some of the Celtics and uh, Lakers teams did uh, pride themselves on making the pass, but the, the Jazz, in my opinion, and maybe I'm a little biased, uh, they were great at it. I think we're all a little, <laughs> a little biased, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, I. Right. I think that is important. I mean, we do think of this jazz basketball as sharing the ball, and, and the jazz were so great at that. I mean, I'm looking at just the basketball reference numbers, and their assist and assist percentage um, was either number one or number two for these for these finals years, and actually throughout the 90s, you know, they, they were actually sharing the ball at a, at a great level. Part of that is, of course, is having the greatest assist man of all time in John Stockton. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and a shooting guard who's also kind of a point guard. Because Hornacek played point guard all through college. Yeah, so I, I, 
I mean, you wrote an article on that and how, and actually included a video of some of these passes that mm-hmm. Hornacek was able to he pull was, off. He was mm-hmm. in of the many areas that Hornacek was vastly underrated in, which I think are several. That was definitely one of them. I think it's, again, it's, you know, it's easy to forget about certain details 15 years later, but Hornacek was a, a maybe not stock, quite stocked and level, but I don't know that there's really been too many ever who were, who <laughs> yeah. were stocked and level as passers, but he was, and, that that benefited them in more areas than just the simple you know those simple areas they had a second ball handler who was capable all the time both those guys could shoot uh, i want to get into well, we're not going to do it right now but I'm, during this podcast i want to get into what the jazz what that jazz team would look like if they played in today's era hmm. okay so we'll save that for yeah, later we'll, we'll get there I, david <laughs> i want to go back to something you said where you know kind of going back in time a little bit where you the Jazz didn't do so well in the playoffs. For they, I would say they underperformed for a, you know a good five, six, maybe even an eight-year stretch in there. Um, you know, depending on how you want to define when kind of the Stockton and Malone era was ready. Uh, you know, why was that? Was it just a supporting cast issue? Um, you know, what was going on there? I I have to say there were a number of factors. Supporting cast uh, was an issue. Uh, back back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, the, the jazz bench was not always the greatest, and uh, they had to rely a, a lot upon the starters, and, and you, you run out of gas a little, I think, uh, as, you, as you're expected, some, that, as so much is expected of you. Um, I think they also were not a very good road team, and, and uh, if they did not have the home court advantage um, in the playoffs, that was a detriment to them. And sometimes, even when they did, they they would lose a game, and and that would then essentially be the series. How much do you think um, the How much do you think those factors kind of played into you know? Carl unfortunately does have a bit of the stigma of how his performance mm-hmm. would tend to decline in the playoffs. How much do you think that that had to do with it? Uh, yeah, I think there's 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 some some uh, blame there. I don't know if blame is the right word, but. Uh, uh, but we also have to remember that uh, Carl and John were the reasons we got there. Exactly. Um, I think so. I think people are a little remiss to forget about that occasionally. But let Definitely. me let me ask you this, David. You wrote an article a few months ago called "52 John Stockton Memories." Okay. Yes. And I don't know if you remember it. It's actually one of our most popular posts ever. Um, but I want to ask you if you could name one of those memories that's your favorite. Which one would it be? Mm, well, I could go with the obvious and say the the game against Houston. I actually did not see that live. I was I just entered the uh, MTC for my mission. Oh wow! So, and and I should say that I missed both NBA finals. Those happened to be the years I was in in uh, <laughs> Japan. So uh, I'd have to say there was a game um, in uh, 1990 or so. It was the Jazz and the Bulls and. Uh, uh, the Jazz were down by seven with 40 seconds left, and John Stockton just took over. He made a three-pointer, stole the ball, got the Blue Edwards for a, a free throw, I think. I got fouled and made a free throw, and then he made the, the game when he shot over Jordan. I thought that was just an incredible performance, and he did it time and time again. In the Houston game, besides the three-point shot, he he really just took over that game and put the team on his shoulders and he said, we're going to get to the finals tonight. Um, and he did it. Is the first game you're referencing the triple overtime game? Or is, is there another? No, I think the triple overtime game was 92. Um, I think this okay. is 
it maybe 89 or 90. Okay. It was when, uh, it was, I think, Blue Edwards' rookie season, so I think that was 1989. Gotcha. So, I mean, and one of the cool things about being a fan now is all of these games that we reference are more or less on YouTube. You can find <laughs> the vast majority of them. Sometimes you got to break them down by clips, but yeah, they're there. Which, I, I mean, I don't know. As, as someone who was barely alive in, say, 1992, it's cool to be able to go back and see those games in either their entirety or just see the highlights of them and see, you know, maybe that the game hasn't changed that much. I mean, we talk about the emphasis on the three-point shot and all mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. I, I think the Jazz were really ahead of their time in how they were doing playing basketball. Yes, I agree. The game has always been and will always be about buckets. <laughs> <laughs> Truth is spoken. Let me ask, um, so you also wrote a post on Jeff Hornacek, and, and Ben wrote one as well this week. Um, for you guys, is he underrated yeah. in terms of his influence on the on the Jazz? I don't know about on influence to the Jazz. Okay, yes, although I think people... I think people recognize that the Jazz maybe hit that their real higher gear when they were able to bring in that third sort of uh, that third major piece and a guy who could really bend some defenses and and take some of the that that primary scoring load off of Stockton and Malone that they had had for so long. I, I think folks generally recognize that, right? But I think more as an overall player, Hornacek is is just vastly underrated. I talked about several things in the article that I did from my typical sort of X's and O's perspective. Um, Hornacek's footwork was one thing that he, you know, he had a post game for a guy that size and who, you know, kind of wasn't the most explosive off of his first step and things like that to have like a real post game. I don't think people understand, especially back then when defense allowed you to pretty much just like wrap your arms around a guy and whatever (laughs) you wanted to. Like, I don't think people recognize what a skill that was at his size like Jordan having a post game back then was considered like one of his greatest assets the fact that he was an athlete who could have a you know who could reasonably due to his athletic skill set expect to to have a sk- that sort of a skill and I, I think that's a, a mega underrated thing for Hornacek specifically the footwork and the way he was around the basket and close to the hoop David do you agree I agree and and another thing about him is he was just so fundamentally sound yeah and- uh, you know, we talk a lot about his amazing ability to make shots and to make the pass, but he was also very good on defense, especially for his size. He he constantly went against guys that were taller than him, um, bigger than him, but he held his own. And, uh, you know, because he was such a cerebral player, he made everyone around him better on both ends of the court. So the one player that we haven't discussed yet out of the trifecta, if you will, is Carmelone. And I know you're running out of time, David, but I just want to get your quick thoughts on on Carl and maybe that relationship between, of course, Stockton and Malone and, and Stockton Malone and Hornacek uh, before you have to leave. Sure, I don't. I don't think we'll ever see anything like the relationship that Malone and Stockton had. Uh, Carl Malone was just an incredible worker. You know, he he could do just amazing things. And and one thing that I loved about him is how he constantly developed his game. We all know the story about how how poor of a free throw shooter he was when he entered the league, and he became what seventy eight, seventy nine percent by the end of his career. Uh, likewise, his passing. Um, I mean, he went from a decent passer to a very good passer, perhaps the best passing big man in the game during that time. Um, I just. Uh, you know, I have nothing but respect for Carmelo. He was 
such an important part of this franchise and always will be. Came into the league shooting 48% from the free throw line in his rookie season, and then by the end of his career was a 74% free throw shooter, like for his career. Wow. So that includes, that includes those first two years where he was under 60% both those years. So that's, yeah, it's pretty incredible, actually, the way he developed that. And he is the all-time leader in free throws made, free throws attempted. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. he, it was an important part of his game. He got to the line a lot. Um, and, and as a Jazz fan... It's cool to see all three of those guys associated with the franchise. I mean, I know Jeff Hornacek is now in Phoenix, but for uh, at least a period of time, we've had Stockton interfering. I, I wouldn't say interfering, but being mm-hmm. able to kind of tutor Trey Burke and the young rookies. Mm-hmm. Dante Exum earlier this year talked about uh, wanting to go up to Spokane and, and meet with John Stockton. Um, mm-hmm. Carl Malone is, of course, the big man coach. Uh, and, of course, Jeff was the assistant for a long time. And it's it's cool to see this era of basketball of jazz basketball kind of interspersed with the current one absolutely and then the other thing that just like i'm i'm gonna start at the first year of carl's career which is 85 86 and i'm gonna read the number of games that he played by year (laughs) going down 81 82 82 80 82 82 82 81 82 82 82 81 49, we won't count that one. 82. <laughs> well, there was only 50 games that year. Yeah, right, and there were only 50 games Give that year. Give yeah. break. 82, 81, 80, 81, and then finally, in his last year, 42, it was finally the first year where he missed, what, more than, like, two games or something? Right. It's insane. Right, and most of those games were suspensions or whatnot. It wasn't because yeah. he was hurt. Yeah, and he was, and this is while you know his. You can go down, going further down the basketball reference page, and I can look at his usage. And his usage during all these years was in the 30s, or you know, the very, very high 20s. Meaning that he's using mm-hmm. that's a percentage of possessions used while on the floor. Again, for those who aren't aware, that's you know, those are those are elite superstar level usage totals, which of course he was. And that's just, I mean, that's just amazing. That's another thing we may really kind of never see. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Well, David, thanks again for joining us and adding your perspective. We'll have you on the show again. Thanks a lot. Sounds good. All right, bye-bye. So I want to talk about that Carl point Mm -hmm. because I I think it is interesting. Um, uh, That longevity while going to the line as much as he did, I mean, one of the reasons people think Allen Iverson kind of had the career drop-off that he did is because he was so aggressive. He was getting fouled so often. He was, you know, he was getting hacked, and honestly, maybe his body couldn't hold up with it. Somehow, Carl's did for 20-plus years. Yeah, I, I think we're, you know, we've used the the word a whole bunch of times, but and, and underrated, but he, the, I... And again, it's it's so hard to label these things underrated when everyone knows about them. Like every, <laughs> everyone knows Carl Malone was a physical freak, like he and that he was just an absolute machine in the way in the weight room, and that he was just in the summers he was just a you know a, a really hard worker, one of the best in history in terms of that. But you. you it, it sh- you know, and then I think I was actually this that's a specific point I was going to make was a, was his free throw rate and the fact that it I mean it really never took a precipitous drop until. He was 35, and wow. even then, like not really, it, not like a well, it didn't consistently drop below 0.5 for, or excuse me, per uh, below yeah 0.5 until he was 38. So when you say until, 0.5, what do you what do you that, say there? So free throw rate is the uh, the way it's calculated is the number of free throw attempts per field goal attempt. 
Okay. So essentially, a point five rating is, is good. Like so, that's for the most part. Like as long as a guy's taking the, especially if a guy's taking the number of shots he's taking, which because you know he was averaging. I'm trying to look at how many free throw attempts he would average per game during those. Or sorry, field goal attempts he would average. He yeah, he was up in the 18s, 19s, tw- even 20 in a couple years per game. So if he's getting one free throw attempt for you know every half, you know. A half a free throw attempt for every one of those shots. These these doing pretty well, right? So looking at it, he led the NBA in free throws eight times um, in eight seasons, and uh, I mean, so I think that's impressive. Um, and I think that stat you said with with the free throw rate going below the point five, uh, I think that kind of reflects how his game adapted in the latter part of his career, where he is taking more jump shots from the outside. Um, but he's still an extremely effective scorer. I mean, he still's got PERs in twenty seven, twenty four point one, twenty one point seven. I mean, these are these yeah. are he's still a very high quality player despite moving outside. And his career high PER was at the age of thirty three, and thirty three isn't like ancient or anything like that. But I don't, you're not seeing too many players hit their peaks at thirty three today. Right, you're pretty much not seeing any. Like it really doesn't happen. And I think that that's he had a bit of a kind of a couple of different peaks in his career like you kind of may have thought especially if you're just going by some of those raw numbers and those larger metrics like a PER style metric or something like that you could say like oh it kind of looks like he may be peaked in 92 93 like when he was 29 which by a normal aging curve that would kind of make some sense right like he was mm-hmm. he was peaking in his in his 7th 8th year in the league and then he had a down year in 93-94 which I which I thought was a really interesting year if you just look at it statistically cuz it's such an aberration from all the other years. Well, it's still it, good. <laughs> it was oh no, it was still great, but like in just for his own standard and okay. like and and I was trying to find a little bit of like was there a, a massive team team thing going on there there were a few differences but like so but then all of a sudden he just kind of starts it back going again and then and really and I think the biggest difference during those later years actually with you spoke about the jump shooting but I think the the passing and David David touched on that while he was on um Carl's passing he really added layers to that every single every year as he got a little bit older and I think that's what kept him super relevant because you know he, with his skill set and his fundamentals and his post game he was he was always going to be a successful player into his 30s there was I don't think there was ever any question barring like a serious injury but without that you, you know even even that aside, I think the part of the passing is probably what one of the key factors and what made him eventually have such the, the the amazing longevity that he had, rather than just being your typical NBA freak, right? Yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting. Both players had these two peaks, and both Stockton and Malone, and actually, if I, looking at it now, Hornacek did too, um, where they were excellent, excellent All NBA players um, from like 1989 to 1992. And then they did have this like ninety three, ninety four little lull. I mean, it's again, it's not good. They were still good. It's not a big lull. They were still good players, but it's it is a couple wins per player when you look at it. They're they're not making as many shots, and I don't know if there's you know something happened with the team or if it's just I really do think a those were just a coincidence. Down, yeah, yeah just I mean that happens. Um, but then they all got together again for this for this run in ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. And, you know, I remember that people were writing the Jazz off because they were too old at that point. They, they didn't expect the Jazz to to peak again at that time. I think that Brian Russell honestly had a decent amount to do with it, actually, as well. 
and he, we, we hmm. talk a little bit about the supporting pieces. And he was he was just coming into the league in those those couple down years that we're talking about, like those '93 style years. But he was an he was an older player when he got drafted. Back then, it was more typical for guys to play out their entire college careers, right. but, uh, especially sort of those mid tier guys like him. He was a he was a late or mid second round pick. Um, and he, but he, so, you know, by the time they started, the Jazz started making that run, he was 25, 26. He was kind of starting to develop into it. That was the, that 96 season was, 96, 97 was the first year that he shot over 40% from three. He was coming in as a, a sort of a, a guy who could defend players like Michael and things like that every time except that one play. Uh, he was really good except for that one play. Always he was fine uh, on that one play. Yeah, it's not no, his fault. Yeah, no, I know it's not his fault. Uh, I, I really do think if if we're talking about a, a bit of the supporting cast, which there it rotated a lot over the years, but I think Brian Russell was one of the more important ones on that, and maybe helped fuel a bit of that resurgence that we can see individually from those guys, just a little at least. Yeah, I almost wonder if like that's one of the evidence points that you know we have all this evidence now statistically using analytics that spacing helps an offense mm-hmm. a lot. I wonder if that is one of the first, like, real examples that if you throw Brian Russell in your lineup, someone who does have the ability to shoot from outside, then that opens up the spacing for the other players on the floor. You know, even if the defense is naturally going to focus on Stockton and Malone rather than Brian Russell. Yeah. Well, and you know, all right. So that kind of that kind of takes me to this, and I think we can I think we can go here now a, okay. l- a little bit. Uh, now, okay, I want to preface this. Jerry Sloan. One of the most remarkable coaches in history. I, my first two pieces for Salt City Hoops actually were kind of a, an ode to J- to Jerry. The first one more of like a sort of a just my mem- my own memories of him and more of a romanticized version. And then the second the second piece being an actual bit of a, a of an analytical sort of breakdown of what Jerry brought both to the Jazz and to the NBA as a whole because stuff that was instituted to the NBA, but maybe he didn't invent it, but stuff that was really popularized in the NBA by Jerry is just natural stuff that everybody does now, and we all we know that. Um, and so again, not trying to criticize Jerry was miles ahead of his time, years and years and years. But you're about to criticize Jerry a little, I guess. Okay, let's hear it. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize Jerry because it's not like everybody else was doing what I'm suggesting, and he was just like behind the times or something. He was just equal to everybody else in the league and hadn't quite yet realized exactly how potent the three point line could be and exactly some of the some of the more advanced things that we've come to in in more recent years now. Let's. I'm just saying in this hypothetical situation where that's another tendency that's 15 years down the line that Jerry just happens to figure out, you know, a decade and a half before everybody else. Let's just say, I think that all of these main pieces that the Jazz, have, with the exception of like your Ostertags and your Fosters and guys like that, but like the vast majority of the players and especially the the main three plus Brian Russell. Those guys, the skill sets they had, I think this team could have been an absolute monster as a small ball team. I think if you stick these guys in their primes into right now's game, like into the current era of game, they would be insanely successful playing one of those styles. I think Carl could be, I think if we put Carl Malone in today's game with the shooting stroke he had, he'd be shooting threes by like his, <laughs> his seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth year. I think there's almost no question. And I think he would have become a, a legitimate threat from there. Maybe never like a 40% guy, but I think he would have been huh. legit from behind three. He had a couple years on really, on small sample sizes, but not that small. Like he shot, there was one year he had 40 attempts and shot 40%, which is that small, but it's not like, not minuscule. It's, you know. Um, and then there were years where Stockton and Hornacek were both over 40% themselves, but neither really ever even came close to touching the league lead in terms of three-point attempts or anything like that. Yeah, well, so what I think is interesting, I'm just looking at this 97-98 team, um, and 
that team took the 29th most three-point attempts in the league. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not just that Jerry was with his time, if you will. He was also not taking as many three-point shots as the rest of the league, despite having excellent shooters on the roster: Stockton, Hornacek, uh, Brian Russell, Howard Isley. I think was a decent three-point shooter in the yeah, end that year. Solid enough. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he shot 40. percent So, and, and actually, the Jazz were the fifth ranked three-point shooting team if you look at it by the percentages so I, I think you're right the, the jazz could have done more on the other hand you look at their offensive rating that year and, it was and insane. It's, it's insane yeah, yeah i mean it's first in the league by a lot yeah so it's um, hard to criticize but at the same time it's like you wonder whether they could have maybe had been like a best offense of all time status if they had been doing things like that and even spacing a little bit more and i think dean oliver in his basketball and paper book put that team as like the third best offensive team ever right yeah. like and it's, so, it's, so it's, it's hard to criticize it too much but it could have been like mind-blowingly yeah, that's insane. what i'm saying it's less even a criticism and more <laughs> just like the, you know this could have been something that we've never even conceived of seeing before ever if jerry had that had been another area that jerry had kind of figured out before everybody else and uh, it, it's uh, really not a criticism because nobody else figured it out yeah and, and maybe you know if you, maybe if you take more threes maybe the offense breaks I, I i think you have to look at that as a possibility yeah and and there's always got you know we talk about these guys as shooters and and Hornacek as a high volume three point shooter still never. I mean, you look at his three point attempt totals for his career and, pa- and compare them to certain like mega high volume three point shooters. He really wasn't up there with them in terms of number of attempts. I suppose it's possible that over him, both he and Stockton over a much larger sample size may have regressed somewhat if they were attempting to, to take so many more threes all the time. It's right. possible. Um, I think Stockton <laughs> would be the more likely candidate for that just because his release wasn't quite as beautiful and perfect as Hornacek was all the time. Yeah, I think but, that's fair, and because he just didn't take as many shots. I mean, yeah. uh, he his true shooting is ridiculous oh, if you insane. look at like how he was... A, just as shooting percentage, Stockton, I think, is the best point guard of all time. Yeah, and again, underrated. So wildly, actually, under, wildly underrated, because we always talk about the passing. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. And so to that point, um, Kevin Pelton did an article um, in 2010, actually, for basketball prospectus, uh, ranking the best players of the 90s using his new, then new um, statistic, Warp, wins above a replacement player. So number one, Michael Jordan. Number two is actually John Stockton. And I think uh, uh, I think that's really interesting. You know, For a, an advanced stat like that, um, to be able to back up who John Stockton was only in the 90s. I mean, I think people look at the assist total and they look at the steals total and say, well, that's because John Stockton played for a really long time. And, you know, he did, fine. But even if you just take, you know, the peak of his career for one decade, he's still the second best player of that decade. Yeah, yeah. And I I think, I mean, a decade is a a decently long period of time. And there's some who'd say, like, oh, you know, that there's certain guys who didn't even get that long and things like that. But he had seven seasons of 20 warp or better. Yeah. Like, Again, that's, nobody has that other yeah. than Michael Jordan. Well, and that's a, and that's something that and this is something that actually that uh, a Grantland guy, Bill Barnwell, who's who's a, he's a football guy, but right. this applies in my opinion to all sports. Maybe more to football than to others because of the nature of the game, but it applies to all sports. Health is a skill. Like some guys have gotten really unlucky, and that you know that that it's it's very unfortunate. Your Greg Odens and your people like that. It's you hate to see it and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But health is a skill. 
Carmelone playing nearly every game every year, missing like what like under twenty games in his career to in a remarkable career to injury was that's a skill. That's yeah, it's because, not an accident. Yeah, it's an it's, there's, it's no accident that he was that nobody worked harder in the weight room than him every summer. Like those things those things don't happen by accident, and the, that's something that you have to consider when you talk about who is a better point guard is who can stay on the floor more often. Like I, this guy's a better point guard if he's out there for all the games, and the other guy isn't. Like that's that's goes into who's better. Yeah, no, I, I, so I completely agree. Um, but I think his peak is underrated is, is yeah. also kind of what I'm saying here is that, uh, you can even say that he was a better player out of Stockton and Malone. If you, if you want to say he, you could say he was the best player on the, on the Jazz. And, and while Stockton would never ever admit to that, um, you know, there's some evidence for it, which I, I think is interesting. By the way, number three is David Robinson, also I think underrated. Um, number four, Charles Barkley. Number five, Hakeem Olajuwon. Number six, Carl Malone. Um, just behind those three, and uh, and that's that's using warp. That's all just straight warp. Yep. Like yeah, so that's just okay. totaling that um number through the Interesting 90s. that Carl was behind Barkley because he was very very consistent for that entire nineties as well. Uh, Carl was, and especially later. Like I would I would have assumed that his peak in those nineties was significantly higher than Charles's, but. I guess there was some. I don't know the exact. Formula yeah, I mean, for warp, it's so. it's not a big difference. It's yeah. only three warp overall. You know, when you look at that, there's pretty clearly a drop off actually between Carmelo and the next player, Gary Payton. Okay. Um, who you know, again, using these kind of semi meaningless or scaleless numbers, uh, Gary Payton's at a fifty six point one, Carmelo's at a sixty seven point seven. And uh, John Stockton, 73.7. So, um, Michael, just by the way, 78.6. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and uh, down a similar road, I actually I have, a, I have a friend of mine, a, f- a former editor of mine at a site I used to write for named Thomas Johnson. He uh, he writes for Fancy Stats at, uh, at Washington Post. For those who haven't uh, checked out Fancy Stats, you should go it's look at it. It's a fun blog. It. Yeah, it's a really fun blog. It's a, it's a good time. Um, he wrote an article. When was this? This was on August 27th, so about a week ago. Uh, he wrote an article. It's uh, NBA Retro Metrics, which was his idea. Actually, he he pitched it to the staff, and they they're starting it. It's uh, cool. he's kind of going back into the. It, it is what it sounds like. It's retro metrics, and uh, he went and looked, and the the title of the article is why John Stockton was the best point guard of the 1990s. And so I th- that's we're kind of right up the same alley there. And he so he looked at Jason Kidd, Gary Payton, Kevin Johnson, Penny Hardaway, Tim Hardaway, Mark Price, and then he also looked at Stockton. I suggested maybe Isaiah when he. He was because he was he actually he consulted me when he was prepping for the article mm-hmm. since I'm such since I'm a jazz guy. <laughs> we didn't go to Isaiah just or he didn't sorry he didn't I shouldn't say we at all. He wrote the article uh, went didn't go to Isaiah just because Isaiah was more like early '90s only. You know, um, he looked at usage rate and how Stockton actually had a lower usage rate than any of those other guys that right. I talked about. He had the lowest one, but also like by far the highest assist numbers and. Also, by far the highest true shooting percentage. We talked about that, um, and then uh, he went into some other things as well. I don't, need, I won't summarize the entire article, but basically, when you break this, when you break it down from a numbers perspective, it actually for the whole decade ninety to ninety nine or whatever you want to say wasn't even too close, honestly, in terms of point guards. And I think Peyton is one that people frequently compare with him, but his his consistency was nowhere near what Stockton was over those years. Yeah. Uh, I, I- I think it's interesting, like, so I feel like John Stockton's usage, low usage, kind of hurts him sometimes. But if you if you make up the difference between, like, a John Stockton and, like, a Penny Hardaway and assume that he's just going to take those shots and miss all of them, 
he almost gets that same percentage as Penny Hardaway. Like, yeah. you know, assuming that he misses all of the shots that he would take additionally that in, in order to be a scorer like Penny Hardaway, he's still on that level of efficiency. Yeah, yeah. and if, so, if not, maybe still a little bit higher. Like, and so that's I, I think that's important to remember. And instead, of course, he instead of taking those shots, he was setting up his teammates. Yeah, yeah, I think. We've got we've got the rose colored glasses always because we're huge jazz fans and everything like that. But I I think you can really there's so many elements of that team that you can just look back and of those teams I should say because there were lots of rotating pieces with the you know the main supporting cast kind of staying the same. But just so many elements that you can look back and just really really enjoy as sort of a a purist style basketball fan. Like these guys did stuff the right way and they they were. They always had class, and they were always they. You, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of blustering on a little bit about <laughs> them, but that's that's kind of what happens to me when I when I talk about those guys. Is they really were, and I I like to say this to people. I I really think that even if I wasn't from here, and that this you know, then that this wasn't a part of my childhood and everything, that the Jazz would be one of those teams that I would look back on as like, but you know, those guys were a really great, fun right NBA team. Well, I think we see that in our current blogosphere, even in the fans who write about and look at the jazz on Twitter and, and like I say, in the blogs and everything else, you see so many people from out of state that have this like innate tie with the jazz. Someone like monologue, who's, you know, never even seen a jazz game. Someone like Amar, who's never been to a jazz game in Salt Lake city, you know, like those kind of things are, they're, literally dedicating hours and hours and hours of these lives of their lives for the team that they have no geographic relationship with it's just that they played basketball in a way that was emotionally emotionally meaningful to to people and yeah. I, I don't know that's and i think it jives powerful with lots, and i think it jives with lots of former players too like lots of people who played the game either when they were younger or maybe even on a semi-professional or professional level i think it i think it connects with people like that i think a lot of people really i've said it like three times now, i think they really do think the jazz played the right way and that the jazz sort of embodied the, the kind of the way you should look at playing basketball as a team and as a unit and as a you know, Stockton and Malone, part of what made them so good was true. We talked about it. David was talking about it. He, you know, don't think we'll really ever see a connection like those in a relationship like those two had. And that's, don't think that that's not meaningful in a tangible on-court sense. Don't think that it's not meaningful that those guys knew each other maybe better than any two and other NBA players like ever, or at least in the league at that time. That's, that's important stuff. Like, I- I, no, I, and I really do think their style of play and, and especially how they acted has kind of rubbed off again on this generation of NBA players. I mean, I remember talking. Uh, I, I bring this up. I, I remember talking to LeBron James. Um, <laughs> I would bring that up like every day. If I if I've spoken to LeBron James in person, it would be a thing. So that one time when I was talking to LeBron, he told me. That, anyway, sorry. No, I mean it, it's in a media press yeah. huddle, and oh, it's not so. like I'm asking you know. I'm not asking any more questions than anybody else, but like the level of respect LeBron James has for Stockton and Malone and what these guys did, he grew up watching them. I mean, the, he grew up knowing that you know there's another way to play basketball beyond ISO heavy, whatever, and learned that you know you can pass, you can you can work as part of a team and be a successful unit, um, you know, beyond just doing the hero ball. And I think LeBron's gotten some some stink out there from that for being too unselfish but i think 
part of where that comes from him innately is from watching these Stockton and Malone teams. Maybe that's too much of a stretch, but I, don't I get think that so sense from from talking to him, quite frankly. I think when the, the more you look at a, a guy like LeBron and stuff's come out, you know, it, of course we write probably more as a, a total NBA blogosphere, we probably write more about LeBron than any other individual player, which is understandable. He's the best player. And you you see these, the, the, the who was it? that It was Windhorse that did a piece a little while back about the way, kind of the way LeBron's brain works and the, how high of a the level of thinker he is generally. Mm-hmm. I, I think absolutely he's thinking about things like that. I think absolutely that his, LeBron has emulated some of the other greats, very much including Karl Malone in terms of his summer, uh, his summer program, adding a new skill Every summer, that Carl was one of the Carl, along with I guess Larry Bird was one of the first to sort of really ever do that. But then, then Michael, Carl, uh, everybody talks about Kobe doing that as well. Like you take examples from the greats. There's a there, believe it or not, there are some reasons why those guys were good at basketball. And you try, <laughs> yeah. and some of them are innate skills, and some of them are things you're never going to be able to duplicate. But some of them are things you can absolutely emulate. And I think you see. You see tons of, not just LeBron, tons of stuff across the NBA of guys emulating at least elements of what these Jazz teams or individuals did in the 90s. Which is, which is I think, the ultimate compliment. I, uh, absolutely. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Yep. All right. So you, we have, I want to get to the crazy trade idea of the week because have we have a special retro edition. Is uh-huh. that right? Yep. Yeah. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so this trade, this is this is an interesting trade. Um, <laughs> I had fun with this one in advance because now I figured that we were we were going down this kind of historical path today, anyway, right? Okay. So uh, I wanted to go back. This trade is not from today. This this trade is from 1986. This this trade took place in 1986. So we're actually. putting ourselves in. It was. Frank Layden still GM? I mean, who's? I don't even know who's in charge. Though. I'm, I honestly don't. Uh, I would. I could say don't remember. Before but I was, either of us were born. Yeah, it was two years. In our defense. Was, so yeah. Um, okay, but the tra- and now of course this trade would require certain future events to not take place because the Jazz player who's being traded was in fact later traded in 1987. But this is 1986. Okay. So this would have happened first. And the guys he was that he was traded for in 87. I would have to track this and make sure that none of these guys were then later involved in the Hornets trade or something important like that but i you know putting that aside and just assuming that they weren't um the trade is uh the jazz send del curry and return in advance or they receive in return excuse me a second round draft pick and arvidas sabonis uh who was drafted in 19 now arvidas sabonis was a really interesting case he was drafted in 86 uh by the trailblazers right but he didn't come over to the nba until 95 so he played. He stayed in Europe for nine years, and I actually don't remember where he played the majority of his career or anything like that. I do know that when he came over to the NBA, he was one of the first sort of floor stretch big man shooters, and sort of in the vein of what I was just talking about and how I think the Jazz could have been this menace of a team if they had sort of gone for a little bit more pace and space and been a little bit more of even like a quote-unquote small ball team. But I don't even think you would have necessarily had to have been quote-unquote small ball with a Sabonis type in the fold. He was 7-3. Right. And he, he had a very short prime that came after, you know, NBA prime came after he was 30 because he didn't even come to the NBA until he was after 30. But I think you stick him and you stick Carl where we're putting in, we're in this hypothetical situation. Carl has been encouraged to expand his shooting range and his shooting corner threes and maybe even regular threes by the time he's in his mid, late 20s and early 30s. And I think you would have had 
just even more, like we were saying, even more of a dominant offense maybe than you already had. Well, and maybe a little bit earlier. I don't know. Do you, first of all, do you think there's any reason Sabonis comes over earlier for a better team? Maybe. Yeah, who knows? You know, that's entirely possible. He was. I don't even know how that how that would have worked. Like, you is that a still? A, could that still happen? Could team? Could do Sabonis teams still, come? Up? No. Do, what I'm what I'm actually wondering about is, do teams still own the rights of guys for that long? Yeah, they, yeah, so they, they own do. them in perpetuity. Oh, okay. So that's you, I guess in the same always... way that we still own Antetomics yeah. um, rights. Should he ever come to the NBA? Which okay. side note, he won't. Yeah, that's probably um, probably not happening. But no, yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, so that's my first question is maybe Sabonis would come over earlier and maybe, maybe the 1990 to 1995 Jazz are better as a result. They could have been. Um, especially because apparently, you know, watching highlight videos, Sabonis pre-injury before he came into the NBA was even probably better than the one that we did see in the NBA. Yeah, I think he probably, I think he was, he almost came over to the, and somebody who's more historically inclined than me could might correct me here when they listen later, but I think that, I think he was actually like, not that the NBA was like a second option, but it was kind of like a second part, like a, a re-energization of his career type of thing, because yeah. that injury was kind of like a big detriment to him at the time when right. it happened. Um, yeah, you know, I think he, he had two, uh, what, three years in the NBA where he shot 37%. I'm, I'm rounding up in his 99-2000 year, but and for a seven foot three guy, like that would have back then, that would have just been, and especially if you had had Carl shooting the range and plus a uh, little bit more of a green light for both Stockton and Malone to where they were among the league leaders in three, especially uh, or Stockton and Hornacek is what I meant to say, especially Hornacek being among those league leaders in three attempts. I think they would have ripped teams apart even worse in terms of uh, offensively. Yeah, no, I, I think it's possible. Um, does that work under the 1986 CBA? <laughs> I, I have no clue. I, I would assume so because they were both picks. Uh, uh, Curry was it was picked in 86 as well. Okay. So I, so I would just assume straight generally. And Curry swap. was picked uh, uh, nine picks higher, I want to say, or something like that. He was so why not just have the Jazz? I mean, I know it's not a trade then and then, then doesn't qualify for the crazy trade idea of the week. But maybe the real what if, what if here is what if... The Jazz had drafted Sabonis yeah, rather than Del Curry. Draft Arvidas Sabonis, yeah. That you know, who knows, and who knows what they if they could have gotten to come over early, have the majority of his career in the NBA, he could have maybe been one of those guys that helped kind of shift the way the NBA was because we've seen some of these these European guys be some of the influencers of things like that uh, on occasion. Yeah, there's I think there's a whole whole fun list of things that could have happened there if the if the Jazz had looked in that direction. And of course, again, it requires Jerry Sloan having uh, premeditated yet another major facet of NBA strategy <laughs> fifteen year, fifteen years before anybody uh, else figured it I out. I don't even think you need to change the strategy so much. I think you know Arvidas Sabonis legitimately improves the team regardless of what strategy. Yeah, you, you know, absolutely. Even if you're not playing that strategy, seven foot three, like it's st- it definitely still would have worked. Well, and he he had an inside game too. He was at, I mean, he was really athletic pre injury um, and still was actually surprisingly so afterwards. Um, I maybe not in athleticism, but kind of quickness and and skill level. Anyway, yeah. um, uh, no, I think that's interesting. I I might have David do another one of his great what if posts. He's for the last two weeks he's yeah. done these awesome kind of what if the Jazz had um, kept Danielle Marshall for example was mm-hmm. his first one, most recent one. Ronnie Seckley, right? Yeah. What if the Jazz had uh, been able to trade for Ronnie Seckley um, successfully in that ninety seven ninety eight season? Um, maybe that's the next one. You know, what if the Jazz had drafted Arvita Sabonis? I mean, you can always do these kind of what ifs if in the draft, but um, I, I, that's a big one. Yeah, and well, and then Dell was traded. The, the Jazz did trade uh, Dell to. They traded him to Cleveland. Uh, him and Kurt Benson for Daryl Dawkins and Melvin Turpin. So I think you, you 
couldn't have you wouldn't have killed the, the you would have missed future. it but you would have missed the dinner bell mel era of that's, the jazz that's true that's <laughs> true <laughs> i i think jazz fans would still trade it for mr arvina sabonis especially in his prime all right well thanks again for joining us everybody that was an awesome podcast on um the jazz's history a little bit kind of talking about it in a analytical perspective i, I think it's kind of cool to bring uh that side of the game to the way things were in the 1990s um and that again very special era of jazz basketball we did definitely gush a little bit we they didn't win totally any under- championships totally but understandable life is hard sometimes you don't win them all I, I i actually think that the perspective that say jerry sloan and stockton malone have on um that part of their careers i guess that they didn't win it is is kind of inspiring that like even if you don't win everything's it's still worth the fight, if you will. Yeah. Again, just kind of the the exactly what you'd hope for. In They're all classy. The, the class and attitude and the the whole thing. All right. Well, before we start crying, <laughs> we're gonna leave. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Tune in next week for another episode of the Salt City Hoops podcast. My name is Andy Larson, alongside with Ben Dowsett. Check us out at saltcityhoops.com. Thanks again.